Chapter 26 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 26. The Distributist League and Distributism. To say we must have socialism or capitalism is like saying we must choose between all men going to monasteries and a few men having harems. If I denied such a sexual alternative, I should not need to call myself a monogamist. I should be content to call myself a man. Advanced number of G.K.'s Weekly, November 1924. From G.K.'s Weekly grew the Distributist League. Its start in 1926 was marked by intense enthusiasm, and its progress was recorded week by week in the paper. The inaugural meeting took place in Essex Hall, Essex Street, Strand, on September 17, 1926. G.K. summed up their aim in the words, Their simple idea was to restore possession. He added that Francis Bacon had long ago said, Property is like muck. It is good, only if it be spread. The following week, the first committee meeting took place. Chesterton was elected president, Captain Went secretary, and Morse Reckett treasurer. It was planned to form a branch in Birmingham. Alternative names were discussed, the Cobbett Club, the Luddite League, and the League of Small Property. The Cow and Acres, however suitable as a name of a public house at which we could assemble, is too limited as an economic statement. The League of Little People... President Mr. G.K. Chesterton may seem at first too suggestive of the fairies, but it has been strongly supported among us. And again, suppose we call our movement the Lost Property League. The idea of restoration of lost property is far more essential to our whole conception than even the idea of liberty, as now commonly understood. The Liberty and Property Defense League implies that property is there to be defended. The Lost Property League describes the exact state of the case. From an article called Name This Child, and another later article. In October, another meeting of the Central Branch was held in Essex Hall to debate Have We Lost Liberty? The Croydon and Birmingham branches were arranging meetings. G.K. conferred with the members of the Manchester branch, and Glasgow announced that it was only awaiting the christening to form a branch. Bath held its first public meeting, with the mayor in the chair, and the meeting had to overflow into a very large hall. It was decided to reduce the price of the paper to two pence. Two Penny Trash was the title of the leading article. In order to give the League an opportunity of extending the paper's radius of action as an organ of the League's principles, every reader who has been buying one copy at sixpence must take three copies at two pence until his surplus copies have secured two new readers. The League would have to make itself responsible for the success of this experiment and save the paper which gave it birth, or die of inanition, for it is certainly not yet strong enough to leave its mother. G.K.'s Weekly, November 6, 1926 it is clear that Gilbert's hopes at this stage ran high. He had not dreamed that the initial success of the League would be so great. Recording a sensational increase in the sale of the paper, he wrote on November 13, 1926, It was when we faced defeat that we were surprised by victory. And we are quite serious in believing that this is part of a practical philosophy that may yet outlast the philosophy of bluff. Recording a meeting of the League, he wrote, we find it difficult to express the effect the meeting had upon us. We were astonished. We were overwhelmed. 
Had we anything to do with the making of this ardent, eager, indefatigable creature? The answer is, of course, that though we had something to do with the shaping of the body, we had nothing to do with the birth of the soul. That was a miracle, a miracle we had hoped for, and which yet, when it happened, overwhelmed us. We have the happy feeling that we have helped to shape something which will go far above and beyond us. There were well over 100 members present. Many of them spoke, and nearly all the others would have spoken if there had been time to hear them. It was a great night. November 13, 1926 Father Vincent McNabb had said truly that there are no words for the real things. Thus, distributism is not only a rather ugly word, but also a word holding less than half the content of the idea we were aiming at. Belloc covered more of it in the title of his book, The Restoration of Property, while perhaps a better name still was The Outline of Sanity. This Chesterton had chosen for a series of articles that became a book. He was asking for a return to the sanity of field and workshop, of craftsman and peasant, from the insanity of trusts and machinery, of unemployment, overproduction and starvation. We are destroying food because we do not need it. We are starving men because we do not need them. After the first meeting of the League, the notes of the week recorded that the printing order for the paper based on actual demand had risen in two weeks from 4,650 to 7,000. Of course, we owe everything to the League, which in Manchester, Liverpool, Glasgow, Croydon, Chatham, Worthing, Chorley, Cambridge, Oxford, Bath, and London has made the news agents aware of the paper. By November 27th, the sales had risen to over 8,000. Then was held the first formal meeting of the central branch of the League, at which it was agreed that members should make a habit of dealing at small shops. They should avoid even small shops which sweat their employees. Each branch should prepare a list of small shops for the use of its members. And that is only the beginning. We hope to enlist the support of the small farmer and the small master craftsman. We hope, little by little, to put the small producer in touch with the small retailer. We hope in the end to establish within the state a community almost self-supporting of men and women pledged to distributism, and to a large extent practicing it. Less and less, then, will the juggling of finance have power over us. For it does not matter what they call the counters when you are exchanging hams for handkerchiefs, or pigs for pianos. The cockpit is worth reading during the months that follow, for here were voiced any criticisms that the readers had to make of the paper and of the League, any criticism that the League had to make of itself. There was plenty. Many Leaguers and readers felt, for instance, that the spirit of criticism of others was too fully developed in the paper, so that when attempts were made to act on distributive principles by people not in the League, with the League, they were given short shrift instead of meeting even modified encouragement. The League was begged to spend more time clarifying its principles, less time in criticism. But much more fundamental was the constantly recurrent question, when is the League going to begin to do something? To this the answer, given often by G.K. himself, was that while the League hoped in time to create a community of which he had written, its own work was only that of propaganda, of a wider and wider dissemination of the principles of distributism. Their work, they said, was to talk. 
Outdoor propaganda started in Glasgow and came thence to London. In October 1931, the Secretary said they must convince men there is a practical alternative to capitalism and socialism by showing them how to set about achieving it. And in November, he subscribed to opinions voiced in the cockpit for the last two years by saying that the London branch acted in the spirit of a pleasant Friday evening debating society, which regarded discussion as an end in itself. One would imagine that all this meant a call to action, but the action was merely the establishment of a research department and the start of a new paper, The Distributist, for the discussion of the League's domestic business. The research secretary will explain his plans and role volunteers and allot tasks, thus equipping the League with the information for lack of which it is as yet unable to agree on practical measures. The effectiveness of its propaganda would, members were told, depend on its research. The pious appointment of investigators, wrote a leader in GK's Weekly in reference to a government commission, to report what is already common knowledge is nothing less than a face-saving, time-marking, shifty expedient. I don't think this article was one of Gilbert's, but I do wonder whether, as time went on, he did not recall his own old comparison between the early Christian and the modern socialist. For distributists, far more than socialists, should have been vowed to action. There was a grave danger both of making their propaganda ineffective by lack of example and of weakening themselves as distributists. Yet there were many difficulties in their path, some of which may be best seen if we go back a little and recall the way in which the encyclical Rerum Novarum was received by Catholics at the end of the last century. Written in Europe, where the remains of the medieval social structure still lingered on far more than in industrial England and America, it was taken by the more conservative Catholics as a general confirmation of the established order. I well remember people like my own father and Father Bernard Vaughan quoting it in this sense, and if they tended to avert to only one half of it, the more radical Catholics readily obliged by appearing conscious solely of the other half and thus enabling themselves to be dismissed as one-sided. Unfortunately, they were worse than one-sided. They were curiously blind, with rare exceptions, to those true implications of the document which spelt distributism, for which the word had not yet been coined, to the restoration of property. The law, therefore, should favor ownership, and its policy should be to induce as many people as possible to become owners. Many excellent results will follow from this, and first of all, property will certainly become more equitably divided. For the effect of social change and revolution has been to divide society into two widely different castes, if work people can be encouraged to look forward to obtaining a share in the land, the result will be that the gulf between vast wealth and deep poverty will be bridged over, and the two orders will be brought nearer together. Yet the Pope's words were treated almost as an acceptance of the existing conditions of property by the more conservative, while the more radical simply tried to evade them. The question in my youth undoubtedly was, how far can a Catholic go on the road to socialism? The rerum novarum, Translation in Huslane's The Christian Social Manifesto was used here. Distributism would seem today to have cut like a sword the knot of this mental confusion, but it did not do so for many people. 
I suppose the leading distributist among the clergy was Father Vincent McNabb, and I have heard him called a socialist a hundred times. Even among those who had accepted the distributist ideal, and had now had fifteen years of the new witness in G.K.'s weekly to meditate upon, to say nothing of the Belloc and Chesterton books, there was still a good deal of confusion of mind to be cleared up. The Chester Belloc, had begun a mental revolution. But even the mind cannot be turned upside down in a moment of time. And then there is the will to be considered. Gilbert often claimed that the society he advocated was the norm, that the modern world was abnormal, was insane. But to achieve the normal in an abnormal world calls for high courage and a high degree of energy. It is much easier to sit and drink beer while planning the world that one wishes was there, the world of simplicity, hard work, and independence. And about the details of this new world, there was room for a variety of opinion. The distributists soon began to argue and even quarrel about the admission of machinery into the distributist state, about the nature of one another's distributism, and what was necessary to constitute a distributist. The effect on Gilbert is interesting, for it showed his belief in the importance of the League. He hoped, he said, that the quarrel would not turn into a dispute, that it would remain a personal quarrel for impersonal quarrel, is schism. He urged again and again that the dogmas of their creed should be defined. Heaven forbid that we should ever be true distributists, as a substitute for being distributists. It would be a dismal thing to join the long and wavering procession of true Christians, true socialists, true imperialists, who are now progressing drearily into a featureless future, ready to change anything whatever except their names. These people escape endlessly by refusing definition, which they call dogma. Practical politics are necessary, but they are in a sense narrow, and by themselves they do tend to split the world up into small sects. Only dogma is sufficiently universal to include us all. Of the world surrounding him, which refused definitions, he said, because there is no image, there is nothing except imaginaries. But I think there must have been some blushes on distributists' cheeks as they read his apology for some slight absence of mind. He explained his own ghastly ignorance of the details of the dispute, which is bound up with the economic facts of the position, with the fact especially of my own highly inadequate rendering of the part of the financier. I am the thin and shadowy approximation to a capitalist. I could only manage until very lately to keep this paper in existence at all, by earning the money in the open market, and more especially in that busy and happy market where corpses are sold in batches. I mean the mart of murder and mystery, the booth of the detective story. Many a squire has died in a dank garden arbor, transfixed by a mysterious dagger. Many a millionaire has perished silently, though surrounded by a ring of private secretaries, in order that Mr. Belloc may have a paper in which he is allowed to point out that a great empire does not default because it is growing richer. Many a shot has rung out in the silent night. Many a constable has hurled himself through a crashing door from under which there crawled a crimson stain in order that there might be a page somewhere for Mr. Kenrick's virile and logical exposition of the principles of distributism. Many an imperial jewel has vanished from its golden setting. Many a detective crawled about on the carpet for clues before some of those little printer's bills could be settled, 
which enabled the most distinguished and intelligent of distributists to denounce each other as capitalists and communists in the columns of the cockpit and elsewhere. This being my humble and even highly irrelevant contribution to the common teamwork, it is obvious that it could not be done at the same time as a close following of the varying shades of thought in the distributist debates. And this ignorance of mine, though naturally very irritating to people better informed, has at least the advantage of giving some genuineness to my impartiality. I have never belonged distinctively to any of the different distributist groups. I have never had time. As time went on, however, the disputes continued. He wrote a series of articles which have in them that note so special to him, so embarrassing to some of his admirers, of deep and genuine respect for every person and every opinion. The small numbers of the distributists, the greatness of the work to be done by them, would make any split in their ranks a tremendous tragedy. The difficulty in keeping any movement in being was that of holding together the ardent pioneers and the rank and file. September 10th, 17th, and 24th, and October 1st, 1932. Men who really have common convictions tend to break up. It is only those who have no convictions who always hang together. Roughly the position is that there is a moderate body which regards extremists as visionary. A more extreme body, which regards moderates as ineffective. And lastly, a catastrophic simplification of the social scene, which makes the simple enthusiast seem more fitted to the simple disaster. There were two approaches that should be made to these differences. The first was to state the fundamental principles of distributism. The crux of the quarrel was the question of machinery. But even those who held that machinery should be abolished in the distributist state held it, he claimed, not as a first principle, but as a deduction from their first principles. Chesterton himself felt that machinery should be limited, but not abolished. The order of things had been historically that men had been deprived of property and enslaved on the land before the machine slavery of industrialism had become possible. The whole history of the machine might have been reversed in a state of free men. If a machine were used on a farm employing 50 men, that would do the work of 40, it means 40 men become unemployed. But it is only because they were unemployed that they were unemployed. Now you and I, hope to heaven, are not trying to increase employment. It is almost the only thing that is as bad as unemployment. In other words, he did not want men to be employees. Men working for themselves, men their own employers, their own employees, was the objective of distributism. A wide distribution of property was its primary aim, and he did not want the League to consist entirely of extremists, lest it should be thought to consist entirely of cranks, especially at a moment when intelligent people are beginning to like distributism, because distributism is normal. The other approach was heralded in the final article of the series, October 1st, 1932, by a reference to the excitement over the Buckfast Benedictines, who had just built their abbey church with their own hands. An adventure to which, if I understand it as completely as I share it, the English blood will never be entirely cold. But about these new heroes of architecture, there is one note that is not new. That comes from a very ancient tradition of psychology and morals, and that is that the adventurer has a right to his adventure, and the amateur has a right to his hobby. 
or rather to his love, but neither has any right to a general judgment of coldness or contempt for those whose hobby is human living and whose chief adventures are at home. You will never hear the builders of Buckfast shouting aloud, down with downside, for it was designed by a careful Gothic architect. You will never hear them say, how contemptible are these Catholics who pray in common churches, tawdry with waxwork imagery and repository art. Of the great adventurers who advance out of the Christian past in search of Christian future, you could never say that the pioneers despise the army. What seemed to Chesterton the oddest feature in the opposition to his idea of sanity was the apparent assumption that he was offering an impossible ideal to a world that was already working quite well. With bland disregard of the breakdown of their own system, the orthodox economists were challenging him to establish the flawlessness of his. They laughed at the distributist desire, if not to abolish, at least to limit machinery. They adjured him to be more practical. Chesterton replied in an earlier article, there may be, and we ourselves believe there are, a certain number of things that had better be always done by machinery. Machinery is now being used to produce numberless things that nobody needs. Machinery is being used to produce more machinery, to be used merely for the production of things that nobody needs. Machinery is being used to produce very badly things that everybody wants produced very well. Machinery is being used for enormously expensive transport of things that might just as well be used where they are. Machinery is being used to take things thousands of miles in order to sell them and bring them back again because they are not sold. Machinery is being used to produce ornament that nobody ever looks at and architecture that nobody wants to look at. Machinery is taking suicides to Monte Carlo and coals to Newcastle and all normal human purpose and intelligence to Bedlam. And our critics gaze at it reverently and ask us how we expect ever to be so practical as that. June 13, 1925. This desperate situation must be met by strengthening the home, re-establishing the small workshop, recreating the English peasantry. But first, the ground might have to be cleared. One phrase used in his articles, a catastrophic simplification of the social scene, reminds us once more how keenly aware Gilbert was of something that had not yet happened, the present war with its breakup of the social order. In the article, from which I have been quoting, he compares the urgency of the hour to the period of the French Revolution. In his outline of sanity seven years earlier, he had stressed the distributist ideal as the last chance to do deliberately and well what Nemesis will do wastefully and without pity. Whether we cannot build a bridge from these slippery downward slopes to freer and firmer land beyond, without consenting yet that our most noble nation must descend into that valley of humiliation in which nations disappear from history. Outline of Sanity, page 34. In this book, which he had tried in vain, he tells us, to make a grammar of distributism, he touches on the enormous changes that had made such a grammar of far greater urgency. When Rerum Novarum was issued, or even 18 years later when G.K. wrote What's Wrong with the World, individualist competition had not yet given place to trust, combine, and merger. The American trust is not private enterprise. It would be truer to call the Spanish Inquisition private judgment. The decline of trade had hardly begun at the turn of the century. Liberty was still fairly widespread, but today... We had lost liberty as well as property and were living under the worst features of a socialist state. 
I'm one of those who believe that the cure for centralization is decentralization. Both in the book and in the paper, he urged constantly a double line of escape towards the restoration of freedom, initiative, property, and the free family. The one line was the comparatively negative one of winning such concessions from the state as would make action possible. The other was personal action, to be taken without any state aid or even encouragement. The germ of recovery lay in human nature. If you get poison out of a man's system, the time will come when he himself will think he would like a little ordinary food. If things even begin to be released, they will begin to recover. To the question, did Chesterton believe distributism would save England? He answered, no, I think Englishmen will save England if they begin to have half a chance. I am therefore in this sense hopeful. I believe that the breakdown has been a breakdown of machinery, not of men. A most difficult question to answer is the degree of the League's success. Its stated aim was propaganda, the spreading of ideas. There is a danger that the tendency to regard talking as negligible may invade our little movement. Our main business is to talk. One sees the point, of course, yet I cannot help feeling that it would have been better if the majority of Leaguers had done some bit of constructive work towards a distributist world and sweated out of their system the irritability that found vent in some of their quarrels. After all the fight for freedom as far as it concerned attacking government was carried on, week by week, by the small group running the paper, the main body of distributists would have learnt their own principles better by trying to act on them, and been far more effective in conveying them to others. Some members saw the need of individual action. Father Vincent set out in one number of the paper 15 things that men could do for themselves as a step to the practice of a distributist philosophy. Father Vincent, indeed, must be put beside Chesterton and Belloc as a really great distributist writer. Useful books were written, too, by Mr. Heseltine and Mr. Blyton, who both also set to work to grow their own food. Mr. Blyton is still writing and still growing food. A workshop was started at Glasgow, probably the most active of the branches. Father Vincent came to a league meeting clad in homespun and home-woven garments, Mr. Blyton urged the example of what had been done by the Society of Friends in creating real wealth in the hands of the poor by their allotment schemes. A weakness was visible, I think, in the very different and contemptuous treatment of Ford's effort to promote part-time farming among his workers during the Depression because it was made by Ford, who was certainly no distributist. But the most inspiring article in the paper in many a year was written by a man who, having tried in vain to get his writings printed, decided to start practicing distributism. He had pondered long, he says, on how the rank and file of the movement, who were neither writers nor speakers, should help. And the answer came to him, do it yourself. After a fascinating description of how he built the nucleus of a dwelling house against the time that a small plot of land could be secured, he ends, by responsible work, a man can best realize the dignity of his human personality. But most of us are caught in the net of industry, and the best way out would seem to be to create. That is, to employ one's leisure in conscious creative effort. This usually means the use of hand as well as head, and the concentration on some familiar craft. The aim also should be to acquire ownership in a small way. That is, to acquire the means of production. If we are not at all events partly independent, how is it possible to urge on others the principles of small ownership? In saying this, he spoke from experience, for he had found that before he began his experiment, his friends were exasperated by references to the principles of distributism, while the sight of the building in progress began to convert them. 
I have found many letters striking the note of gratitude to Gilbert for his goodness and the inspiration he has given. One of these, written by a sailor from HMS Hood, is pure distributism. Your articles are so interesting, though so hard to understand. Why not come down a bit and educate the working class who are always in trouble because they don't know what they want? You see, sir, your use of words and phrases are so complicated. Personally, that's why I'm so fascinated when I read them. But really, us average council school educated people can't learn from you as we should. But what I do understand helps me to live. The sailor goes on to tell the story of his life. A workhouse child, a farm boy, a seaman on a submarine who spent his danger money on a bit of land in Cornwall. Married now, when with two boys. What a thrill of pleasure we have when we gaze over our land. To be reared in a workhouse and then to leave a freehold home and land to one's children may not seem much to most people, but still out of that my sons can build again. I feel you understand this letter, what is in my heart, and I want to thank you very much for what you have done for me. Towards the end of September 1932, the League held a meeting to which Gilbert came as peacemaker. In the course of his speech, he remarked that he had often said harsh things of America in the days of her prosperity, but in these days of adversity, we might learn much from that country. He instanced the saying he had heard from a businessman on his recent visit. There is nothing for it but to go back to the farm. And noted the fact that America still had this large element of family farms as a basis for recovery. The suggestion that distributists wanted to turn everybody into peasants had been another point answered in the outline. What we offer is proportion. We wish to correct the proportions of the modern state. A considerable return to the family farm would greatly improve this proportion. Outline of Sanity, page 56. But if he had spoken harshly of the United States, it was nothing to the way he had talked of the British Empire. Although at moments he saw in imagination the romance of the fact that England had acquired an empire absent-mindedly through Englishmen with the solitary spirit of adventure and discovery, yet he had an unfortunate habit of abusing the dominions. They were the suburbs of England, a curious phrase from that man who found suburbs intoxicating. We could not learn from them as we could from Europe for they were inferior to us. These and many other hard things we would throw out again and again in his articles. One letter in the cockpit reproached him from a New Zealander of English descent. It asked him whether he really meant that those of his own race were so utterly indifferent to him, whether he really preferred Bohemians and Norwegians to Britons. The letter received no answer. My husband and I used to wonder with secret smiles whether he was the Australian from whom Gilbert derived the idea of that country as a raw and remote colony. Bellock also, in a letter extolling the faith, asked what else would print civilized stuff in Australasia. Many years earlier, Gilbert had written, in reviewing a book on the cottages of England, of the inconsistency of the English upper classes who exalt the achievement of the national character in creating the empire and disparage it concerning the possibility of recreating the rural life of England. Their creed contains two great articles. First, that that the common Englishman can get on anywhere. And second, that the common Englishman cannot get on in England. Surely Chesterton had this same inconsistency as it were, in reverse. The common Englishman was great in England, the common Irishman was great in Ireland, the common Scot was a figure of romance in Scotland. But when these common men created a new country, that new country became contemptible. 
the empire took a magnificent revenge for it was in the suburbs of england that distributism was first taken seriously and used as practical politics a far more effectively distributist paper than the distributist appeared in ceylon under the able editorship of j p de fonseca in which action was recorded and the movements of the government watched and sometimes affected from the distributist angle and catholic social thinking formed on distributist lines this paper has a considerable effect also in india but of course the main distributist impact has been felt in the states in canada and in australia there is a double-edged difficulty in talking about the influence of any one on his times on the one hand as monsignor knox pointed out all of our generation has grown up under chesterton's influence so completely that we do not even know when we are thinking chesterton one sees unacknowledged and unconscious quotations from him in books and articles one hears them in speeches and sermons on the other hand into the making of a movement there flow so many streams that it is possible to claim too much for a single influence however powerful an american distributist said to me lately that the movement set on foot by chesterton had reached incredible proportions for one generation i think this is true but we have also to render thanks for example to the suicide of the commercial capitalist combine which created the void for our philosophy that the distributist league has had much influence i doubt in the united states the chesterton spirit is better represented by that admirable paper free america than by the american distributists for free america is offering us precisely what the league has for the most part failed to offer a laboratory test of the distributist ideal every number carries stories of men who have in part-time or whole-time jobs in small shops and backyard industries tried out distributism and can tell us how it has worked and how to work it its editors herbert agar ralph bersodi canon de Guti, and others all foremost in the ruralist movement acknowledged debt to chesterton and are carrying on the torch monsignor Ligutti's own work in the field of part-time farming his own periodical and the thoughts that inspire the catholic rural life movement of america are among the most important manifestations of that universal religious and rural awakening for which chesterton worked so hard and longed so ardently in canada the antigonish movement has shown a happy blending of theory and practice for the university itself has in its extension movement and by its organ the maritime cooperator provided the theory while up and down the country cooperative groups have built their own houses and canneries started their own cooperative stores and saving banks and made the maritime provinces a hopeful and property-owning community of small farmers and fisherfolk several important books have grown out of this movement and at its basis lies the insistence on adult education which shall make ordinary men masters of their destiny surely it is the authentic voice of chesterton when dr tompkins says trust the little fellow or dr cody declares the people are great and powerful and can do everything in australia distributism has given a fresh slant to both labor and catholic leadership the direct debt to chesterton of the australian catholic worker is immense and while the paper also owes much to the catholic worker of america and to the Josites of france and belgium we find too that in america france and belgium chesterton himself is studied more than any other catholic englishman the campion society founded in melbourne in nineteen thirty one the catholic guild of social studies in adelaide the aquinas society in brisbane the chesterton club in perth and the campion society in sydney have all based their thinking and their action on the chester bellock philosophy 
These groups have closely analyzed Bellock's servile state and restoration of property and have applied its principles in their social action in a most interesting fashion. Thus they opposed and helped to defeat a scheme for compulsory national insurance chiefly on the ground that the social services in a modern state were the insurance premiums which capitalism paid on its life policy. With wages high enough to keep families in reasonable comfort and save a little, with well-distributed property, national insurance would be rendered unnecessary. Yet on the other hand, they supported and won national child endowment because although fundamentally only a palliative, this at least strengthened the family by supplementing wages and helping parents towards ownership and property. Most important, however, of all the Australian developments has been the approval of the main distributist ideal of the Australasian hierarchy as the aim of Catholic social action. This was especially set out in their Statement of Social Justice issued on occasion of the first Social Justice Sunday in 1940. The hierarchy of New Zealand joined with that of Australia in establishing this celebration for the third Sunday after Easter. Indeed, the social policy of Australian Catholicism has produced the slogan, Property for the People. While the policy has been brought into action both by many scattered individuals in that huge but thinly populated country, and in organized fashion by the rural life movements with their own organs of expression, published by the Australian CTS. If it is difficult to estimate the impact of mind upon mind, it becomes bewilderingly impossible to weigh in such a movement as distributism, the actual practical effects. Partly because, while distributism leads naturally to cooperation, an individual, says Chesterton, is only the Latin word for an atom, and to reduce society to individuals is to smash it to atoms. Still, the movement is essentially local. The group's usually small. For my own part, I have traveled a good deal, always with a primary interest in social developments, and everywhere I have found Chesterton and his derivatives. The numbers in America alone, both in the States and Canada, who are trying out these ideas in big and small communities is amazing. I did begin to make a list of vital movements, beginning with the Josites and the American Catholic worker, roving over the world and trying to estimate in each movement I had met the proportion of Chesterton's influence, and again the extent to which one movement is in debt to another. But I gave it up in despair. One can only say that certainly there has been a great stirring of the waters in every country. Each is taken and each is given to the other. And most of those thus cooperating have been the little men whom G.K. loved and in whom Dr. Tompkins tells us to trust. The utter nobility, the thoughts of that little man, was, Chesterton held, the highest aim that poet and prophet could set before him. Distributism is that little man's philosophy. Chesterton gave it large utterance. And he could do it the more richly, because, as he said many times ago, of the religious philosophy that was the basis of his social outlook, I did not make it. God and humanity made it. And it made me. Meanwhile, he himself distributed royally. He gave help to the Catholic land movement, to Cecil houses, to all who asked him for help. He educated several nieces and nephews of Francis, and gave money or lent it in considerable sums to old friends in difficulties. If some event, perhaps Judgment Day, should call together all those helped financially by Gilbert and Francis, I think they will be surprised to meet one another and discover what a lot of them there are. They gave two to the Catholic Church at Beaconsfield, which later became Gilbert's monument, and to which Top Meadow was left after Francis' death. 
but even Top Metal was distributed, a small piece being cut off the garden and left to Dorothy Collins. And I think even in a distributist heaven, it must add to Gilbert's happiness to see the 17 rabbits, the chickens, and the beehives, to say nothing of the huge quantities of vegetables produced on this fragment of his property. For this war, like the last, with all its suffering, will, if the bureaucracy permit it, again energize the people of England into that creative action which is the only soil for the seed of distributism. It began distributing the people, and London was no place for a distributist movement. It is no chance that the growth of this philosophy is among small groups and in the countryside. On the land, as Father Vincent often says, you need not waste a moment of time or a scrap of material. This is the fierce and pious thrift that Gilbert saw in his youth as so poetical and in his age as part of the philosophy of distributism. End of chapter 26